is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome everyone to this uh, Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. Uh, my name is Michael Wills. I'm the Executive Vice President here at NBR. And we're talking today about the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, during the week in which the leaders of the four Quad states are meeting in Tokyo. Um, but what we'd like to do in this issue of Asia Insight is actually look at the, the evolution of the Quad as a security institution and then look to the future and sort of imagine where it might go. Um, we're, we're obviously looking at the Quad in an international security environment that is very different in May of 2022 than we were imagining. I mean, the Quad has been in action for um, uh, you know, many years now, sometimes actively, sometimes a little bit more passively. Um, the Asia-Pacific security environment has certainly sharpened over the last decade or more. Um, and this is largely driven by you know, very assertive Chinese behavior in a range of areas. Um, which is one of the driving forces behind the Quad. But obviously this year in particular, with this latest stage of, of Russia, Russian aggression toward Ukraine and, and the invasion that began in late February, we're now three months into that. That has had a dramatic impact on obviously the European security environment, but it has changed the security environment globally, and it has changed how the Quad countries and other major powers in the Asia-Pacific region are thinking about their relationships with China, their relationships with their other allies and partners with the United States, and how they're sort of navigating this complex set of, of security questions. So uh, I'm joined today by three expert speakers. Sorry, let me rewind that. So I'm joined today by four expert speakers who will be representing each of the Quad countries. Um, let me introduce them each, and then we'll start off with our, with our conversation today. So um, uh, our first uh, guest, and I'll go in alphabetical order here, is Haley Channer, who is a senior policy fellow at the Perth US Asia Center. Uh, and she's joining us this week from the United States, uh, where she's uh, doing some work. Um, we also have Sheila Smith, a senior fellow for Asia Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the author of numerous publications and books, uh, most recently including Japan Rearmed, The Politics of Military Power, and before that, Intimate Rivals, Japanese Domestic Politics and a Rising China. My colleague here at NBR, Alison Solwinski, who's our Vice President of Research and the co-editor with, with me and Ashley Tellis of our Strategic Asia series, uh, will be speaking uh, from the US perspective and, and her work is focused on US alliance relationships, US-China relations, and the impacts of those on great power competition in the region. And our fourth guest is Akriti Vasudeva, who's a fellow with the South Asia program at the Stimson Center in Washington, DC. And her research interests focus on US-China-India strategic dynamics, the geopolitics of South Asia and the Indo-Pacific region, US-India defense relationships and strategic cooperation, and Indian foreign policy. So four wonderful speakers with us today. Um, and let me start off with, with sort of a question for all four of you, and we'll go in turn here. Um, and let me rewind to this, this current situation in Europe. So we'll start outside the region. Um, so my read of this is that, that you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has um, met fierce and surprisingly strong Ukrainian resistance, which in turn seems to have galvanized Western and European security thinking, reinvigorated the NATO alliance. Um, and, you know, the, the reactions, I think, from what Russia was hoping to achieve and from how things have actually gone out on the ground are, are very different. 
But obviously, um, that invasion is a major challenge to the global security order. It hasn't just had impacts in Europe. It's also had uh, significant impacts in the Asia Pacific. Some of these have been, you know, fevered speculations about is this a sign that, you know, China will do something on Taiwan and are there lessons that we can draw from the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine toward a cross-strait relationship? Uh, others, I think, are more interesting, and that's kind of looking longer term at the relationship between China and Russia, which essentially declared a friendship with no limits right on the eve of the Olympics, just a few weeks before Russian tanks moved over the border into Ukraine. And so that relationship between China and Russia is one that I think we'd like to, to, to look at a little bit. But let me start off, Sheila, with you and, and looking at Japan, looking at how Tokyo views the, the global security environment. How do you think this Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed strategic thinking in Japan, which was already getting more and more concerned about assertive Chinese behavior? Thank you, Michael, first of all, for having me join the conversation. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. Um, Japan, and this began under Prime Minister Abe, as you know, Japan has increasingly seen its role in a global setting, not simply as an actor and an ally of the United States or as an actor in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I think this is just a, a, a new added dimension to what the Japanese have seen as their best road forward for thinking about you know, a, a coalition of support for any kind of use of force by China in the Indo-Pacific. So let me start with the Ukraine piece or the Russian aggression against Ukraine. You'll remember in 2014, when Russia moved against Crimea, Japan of the G7 countries was relatively muted in its response. It, it, did, it had some visa waivers and some small sanctions of Russia, but it really wasn't on par with the European countries and with the United States in terms of thinking about sanctions. Um, this, this, this round, though, Japan has taken a very different tack. Prime Minister Kishida from the very beginning said this is not just about Europe. This is about the defense of a rules-based order, uh, the post-war order that we all understand uh, is not, doesn't allow for aggression against sovereign states. Um, and so Japan really very quickly stood up and said, we're not thinking about this in terms of our own interests, but we're thinking about it in the long-term interest of the global order. And you see right now that the Japanese have imposed sanctions that basically kept pace with European and U.S. sanctions on Russia, with aid to the Ukraine, including, I, I would say I was quite surprised, um, military, military equipment, and again, defensive, not lethal aid, obviously, but with flak jackets and, and medical assistance and bulletproof vests to help the Ukrainian defense forces uh, cope with the aggression. And you're also seeing it reach out to other uh, NATO allies, uh, the foreign minister, of Japan. Mr. Hayashi attended the foreign minister's meeting of the NATO alliance, again, a first for Japan. And I think Prime Minister Kishida has been invited to the leaders meeting of NATO. So you're really seeing outreach to Europe. You're seeing, you know, lockstep kind of uh, uh, policies, step by step by step, to punish the, the Russians for what they have done, and to help the Ukrainians resist. And I think this is a very different position from for, from the past for Japan, and very proactive in terms of aligning uh, Japan's interests with those of, of NATO and also with those of the United States. Thanks, Sheila. Let me have uh, one quick follow-up question to you there. Um, that's great to sort of get your views on, on how Japan has, has sort of reacted to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
Give me a little bit on how you think Tokyo is looking at the, the announcement that um, uh, President Xi Jinping and President Vladimir Putin made in February, this friendship without limits. Yeah. Um, has that changed thinking or reinforced thinking in Tokyo about China's, um, you know, sort of situation and posture toward Japan? Yeah, well, the, of course, the Japanese have been watching very closely the military exercising that the Russians and Chinese have been doing in, in the vicinity of Japan. They've been watching very carefully almost every statement in which the, the Russians and Chinese align themselves. So that February 4th agreement was really, it, it really sort of brought home again to Tokyo that this is a moment where the fusion of Chinese and, and Russian interests might be more, much more forward leaning than they had even imagined. And yes, this makes them very worried. I think the you know coupling that with you know for a long time Prime Minister Abe had been trying to find common ground with President Putin on the Northern Territories on a peace treaty trying to what he would say pull the Russians away from the Chinese a little bit in the Indo-Pacific uh, that that effort didn't succeed um, but I think what you're seeing now with the Russian aggression against Ukraine is Japan has basically given up it said fine we understand. You have made your choice and we have made ours, you know, and so they've been now talking about the occupation of the northern territories, the islands, uh, the Kurils, as the Russians call them, but the northern territories, as the Japanese referred to them, to the north, that this is an illegal occupation by the Russians. That's language the Japanese have not used in the past because they still held out hope of a diplomatic reckoning with Russia. So I think you're seeing a kind of cementing, if you will, or a rigidity now being um, being. Um, you know, not forced, but being accepted by Tokyo as this is the reality and we're going to have to deal with it uh, in the Indo-Pacific as well. Great, thank you. Akriti, let me come to you now for India. It's interesting to hear Sheila describe clarity as sort of one of these signals from Tokyo in terms of how the Japanese leadership has reacted. Um, clarity is not something that I would look at as, as I look at Delhi and say, this. how has the, the government of, of Prime Minister Modi reacted to the situation? Obviously, India's got complex relationships with both China and Russia, as well as with the United States. Um, so could you give us your views on how, um, how India is viewing this sort of evolving strategic landscape and how it's sort of thinking about its, its strategic interests in this changed environment? Thank you so much, Michael and NBR, for having me. And it's great to be uh, on this conversation with such extremely uh, amazing analysts. So thank you so much. I think, uh, you know, first thing I would like to say is that Indian officials, including Prime Minister Modi, have spoken about the significant impact and consequences that, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, although they haven't called it that, uh, will have on India's national economy as well as its national interests. Uh, I think the, the important thing to understand about the situation from India's point of view is the constraints that it faces in uh, taking a more overt and public stance on this crisis. Uh, so the one thing I want to mention is research that my colleagues at Simpson Center and I have done on India's dependence on Russian arms. So 85% of India's arsenal uh, is actually of Soviet or Russian origin. And so India depends on uh, Russia, you know, Moscow uh, for spare parts, for maintenance, uh, for repairs. And so that has really kind of guided uh, its stance on this crisis. Secondly, Historically, India and the Soviet Union or India and Russia have had uh, a strong relationship politically, you know, strategically, defense-wise, especially in the United Nations Security Council. India has uh, you know, counted on Russian support uh, for India's position in Kashmir. And so this is not something that you can easily you know, shake off. 
having said that, having seen sort of the constraints that India has on sort of, you know, this military level and the strategic and, and political level, we've still seen uh, India actually offer humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. We have seen that uh, India is actually, it's, you know, stance of the UN has evolved over time, where initially it was not, uh, you know, saying much. It started actually uh, very uh, forcefully talking about upholding the territorial sovereignty and integrity of all states. It was calling for upholding of the international, uh, you know, law and actually calling for cessation of hostilities um, and calling for peace between Ukraine and Russia. And India is probably one of the only countries that actually has channels of communication open with both Ukraine and Russia and could potentially play a role in this crisis. So I think, you you know, it, it would be unfair to say that that India's stance has been unclear. I think it has been one that they have described as principle neutrality. And there are reasons why uh, the stance is the way it is. But I will want to say one thing. I think talking about sort of the strategic uh, learnings that India has had from this, uh, from this episode, I think India was already uh, trying to reduce its reliance on Russian weapon systems because of issues with, you know, costs and because of uh, quality issues. But this has really accelerated that process. And we've seen uh, India actually uh, go in more for indigenization of defense systems. It has wanted, it has actually canceled some helicopter deals with Russia. It has also uh, put in place guidance, which is uh, calling for a ban of, uh, you know, certain equipment and defense imports and actually focusing on indigenous development, but also on, you know, the point that you were making, Michael, about the China-Russia alliance and alignment, that is something that has really concerned India about this crisis. So, you know, what India is worried about is what is this kind of, uh, you know, Russian dependence on China and sort of this pressure on Russia and the international community and, you know, it needing Chinese support, what's that going to mean for the India-China border? Is it possible that China is going to put pressure on Russia to say, don't provide, you know, emergency weapons or supplies to India or, you know, vote with us at the UN on certain resolutions related to India or, you know, uh, play some kind of spoiler role with, with Pakistan? So these are the things that are really concerning India. And I think I've actually driven it to... Uh, to develop more, you know, stronger relations with Western countries. And that's why you've seen India actually reach out to the US, to its port partners, to the UK, but particularly to reinforce sort of, you know, the weapon side of things, but also to build these political and strategic alignments uh, in this sort of evolving situation. Thanks, Akriti. Let me ask a quick follow-up to you as well. Um, Again, thinking back to Sheila's remarks about how um, the Japanese have been attending NATO meetings, do you get any sense that India is looking for that, would welcome that? I mean, is that something that is uh, maybe too early at this stage, but if we were looking out, you know, assuming this crisis runs for uh, at least through the rest of this year and possibly longer, quite frankly, I mean, is that something where given the concerns you've just described about um, India's worries about a stronger China-Russia alignment and the impact that would have on India's interests, do you think that might prompt India to kind of continue moving in this direction of, of strengthening ties with not just the United States, not just with the other Quad partners, but also with NATO or some other key partners in Europe? Um, I'm not sure particularly about the NATO specific uh, structure, but I think India is already doing that with European partners and it's trying to sort of align uh, its values and interests with with other countries. So, and I think there are also other fora in which India can discuss that, right? So this can be at the Quad, it can be at the G20. So I don't think it necessarily needs to have these conversations in sort of a NATO structure or NATO meeting structure. But I do uh, think that India is going to continue to develop stronger relations with all of the partners that you mentioned. Thank you. 
I'd like to swing south now to Australia and ask Haley to offer her thoughts on how Canberra is thinking in broad terms about the Quad, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the deepening China-Russia alignment, and how Australia is now trying to balance in own, its own interests vis-a-vis -vis both the United States and China. Well, thank you very much for having me. First of all, the war in Ukraine reminded the Australian public and government that conventional hot wars are still possible in our 21st century. And that really made the idea of war in our own Indo-Pacific region much more visceral because in the Australian mindset, the main challenge set that we have is China and a potential invasion of Taiwan by China. So although Australia is very far away from Ukraine, um, it is concerned about the implications of um, a power such as Russia invading uh, a neighbouring country, in this case, uh, a completely sovereign country, whereas if you change and look to the Indo-Pacific, um, Taiwan's sovereignty is slightly disputed. And although it's not a light-for-light -light comparison, there are a lot of concerns about what kind of lessons the Chinese Communist Party will be taking from Russia's invasion. And in terms of how that relates to the Quad, well, we obviously saw an emergency leader's uh, phone call after um, Russia's invasion. And that, in one sense, is good in a sense that it shows those four world leaders coming together to talk about a challenge to the rules-based order, which is something the Quad has said that it is standing up for. My problem with that is that it takes the Quad's focus away from the immediate Indo-Pacific region and it forces it to look far more further afield, including um, to areas where the countries, the four countries' values might not align. And obviously we see that in terms of India and India's close military relationship with Russia. So my view on that is that if the Quad starts to look outside the Indo-Pacific region, like two issues like Ukraine, cracks in the quad armour will start to appear, and that's why the quad really needs to focus more narrowly on the Indo-Pacific. Okay, let's come now to, to the United States and to Alison. Um, you know, it, it's interesting for us as we sort of watched US policy toward the Asia-Pacific and through various permutations of, you know, rebalance to Asia or kind of focus on the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Obviously, the Biden administration had very similar views of prioritizing its US interests in the Indo-Pacific at the beginning of the administration. And yet we're here today with another crisis outside the region that is sort of distracting US attention. So I'd like your views on how you think Washington is, is sort of viewing this global strategic environment and security environment, but also how that's affecting sort of US strategic objectives and thinking toward the Indo-Pacific region. Great, and thanks also uh, to all of our uh, great experts here. It's a wonderful opportunity to be able to join you and talk about these issues. Um, so yeah, the, the invasion of Ukraine has, on the one hand, drawn the immediate attention of the Biden administration away from the, the seemingly more medium to longer term strategic challenges in the Indo-Pacific. And we can see that in part uh, in the delay of releasing uh, several strategic documents and anticipated plans, including the national defense strategy and the long anticipated uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework or the IPEF. Um, which you know, fell victim to the pressing response that Ukraine has demanded. 
Um, the current trip uh, that Biden is making to the region and the second leader summit of the Quad, however, is intended to uh, message to close allies and partners the continued strength of U.S. commitments. Uh, it also signals at the same time to others in the region, uh, including China, that even while the United States is focused on responding to the Ukrainian invasion, it has not lost sight of the importance of the Indo-Pacific to long-term U.S. interests. And so a really critical piece um, in selling this message, especially in the region, is filling in the lagging piece of uh, U.S. strategy in Asia, um, and that's the, the economic piece. Um, while the U.S. has been shoring up its diplomatic relationships and committing strongly to security cooperation, uh, countries in Asia have been left wondering what the economic commitments to match these moves will be. With the IPEF rollout finally happening, um, the administration is hoping to start elaborating on and bolstering economic commitments, uh, but the devil will be in the details as these uh, kind of continue to uh, emerge. And as the United States seeks to compete with China across a range of issues, offering countries in the region alternatives to uh, current Chinese-led initiatives, uh, such as the RCEP, will be a critical component for U.S. success in this strategy. Um, on, a, on a slightly different track that you touched on earlier, Michael, uh, another major component of, of the second-order consequences that you mentioned um, is how the West's inability to deter Russia from invading Ukraine might shift thinking about deterrence in Asia. Uh, within the United States. So both Beijing and the US are learning lessons about this failure of deterrence in Eastern Europe. And in the United States, the concept of integrated deterrence, um, you know, incorporating deterrent capabilities across domains that include diplomatic, economic, uh, information, cyber, military, um, and also with those of allies and partners, is still that's still being developed, um, but the practical implementation of that remains, as with the economic strategy, still a little bit unclear. Um, as do questions about whether that would ultimately be successful in deterring China from taking action against Taiwan, for example. Uh, so, relatedly, the failure of deterrence in Eastern Europe and now. Uh, multiple instances of the U.S. president affirming a, a commitment to Taiwan uh, and then after having that walked back, um, that is causing the U.S. approach of strategic ambiguity about Taiwan to come under serious question. And it still remains the official policy and official position of the United States. Um, but the war in Ukraine is really prompting new debates in, in D.C. and in the Washington policy space that uh, the that uncertainty around this question uh, may no longer serve the purposes of deterrence. Um, and that is in turn prompting fresh calls uh, to establish some strategic clarity that the U.S. would be committed to coming to Taiwan's aid should China invade. Ali, thanks. You've, you've given us plenty of avenues to follow here. So let's try and do this. Um, I want to get back to this, these questions of U.S. deterrence and extended deterrence. I mean, obviously, these are not just U.S. deterrence in the case of India, which has its own independent um, nuclear deterrent. Um, the IPEF question and the economic trading relationships are an important one. I'd like, though, to start first by going back to each of you and, and have you tell us a little bit about the 
um, the domestic political debate within each of your countries as it relates to, to the Quad in particular. And the reason I ask this is um, we've seen periods in the Quad's evolution where it has, has, has grown rapidly and, and then where there's been years of, of inaction and, and sort of people have essentially, it, it's become almost just a talking shop. It's had a period of renewed interest right now, but we've obviously got leadership changes taking place in different countries across the region. Um, Sheila, I'd like to come back to you for Japan to begin with. Um, you know, the Quad originally was was an idea that came out from, from Shinzo Abe administration. Um, when he stepped down and Prime Minister Suga took over, you know, those two had a very similar view on national security issues. Prime Minister Kishida generally is understood to come from the sort of more dovish part of the LDP. And so I'm curious if you think that there's a, any sort of domestic political pressure within Japan that is going to incline Japan away from this stronger um, sort of security engagement with the U.S. and with the other Quad partners. OK, so, Michael, the, the quick answer is no. <laughs> no. I mean, of the four Quad partners, I would say the least likely to change is going to be Japan. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is if you go back, it was actually almost the very the very first Shinzo Abe term in office, um, way back in 2006, 2007, where some of these ideas started to bubble up. Um, you had, an, beyond his first term in office, then you had others in the LDP and in the bureaucracy begin to really wrap their minds around a strategic coalition for Japan that would be among the democratic nations Right. So India was identified clearly, obviously, the United States, Australia. And so you, you see a little bit of, of movement with Tokyo and Washington in the direction of trilateralizing some of the security dialogues. So in 2008, you get the U.S.-Japan uh, trilat with Australia. And that just took off, as you know, the, the Japan-Australia uh, security relationship just took off without the United States needing to be in the room. It really was uh, an obvious area of shared interest. That that was then followed by the Japanese, U.S. Um, and India trilat, mostly through, first of all, the Malabar exercises, but then, again, increasingly Japan-India cooperation on a whole host of strategic dialogues. So what you're seeing is a kind of a natural formation that of networks of security relationships that include to Tokyo in with these other countries of the region. So the Quad was the next best step. I, I really think of the Quad as not just Abe Shinzo's idea, but of really taking off in the summitry that we saw since last year. Um, and here, I think you've got the, the kind of maturing of Abe's idea about a free and open Indo-Pacific. The idea that you have to coordinate not just for maritime security, but also connectivity, commercial uh, focus on energy and other kinds of things. In other words, Japan began to bring its military into the conversation about how to connect with the region in a way that would not necessarily openly counter China, but would be values-based, would showcase Japan's economic relationships in the region to its advantage, but would also draw in these other big major players in the region. So you see this coming together in the free and open Indo-Pacific idea. And then of course the United States buys in wholeheartedly uh, when the Biden administration comes in and, and kind of starts to adopt the same language Japan had. So I think there there you don't see a lot of domestic debate to get back to your original question. It's not as if you have opposition parties that say, no, 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 the quad is bad for us. Um, I think across the board, you see the foreign policy elites, the public. Uh, rarely do I see any criticism coming from the public 
um, you know, groups or, or actors that say the quad is bad for Japan, don't do this. In fact, they see it more as network building and a positive accumulation of Japanese experience in the region. And the, the Japanese government has managed to bring the U.S. along. So I think it's a it's a largely consistent vision over time and there's more traction to it now and I don't expect that you could have a change you know next year in the government I don't think that's going to happen but you could and I I, I don't see them moving away from either the free and open Indo-Pacific concept or the quad is the vehicle for moving forward with major power coordination on that vision. Great thank you. Let's let's turn now to Akriti and, and I, a similar question for you on on India. I mean, obviously, India's been part of the Quad under both Prime Minister Singh and now Prime Minister Modi. Um, uh, you know, what's your sense of again? Is there is there any sort of domestic political debate? Is there debate within the sort of national security establishment within India in terms of how the government bureaucracy is interacting with the military? In terms of India's view of, of, you know, is the Quad something that India is is seeking to see become more institutionalized as part of India's fulfillment of its strategic interests in the broader region? Thanks, Michael. Uh, So, yes, I mean, I think the evolution of the Quad, if you look at it from the 2006-2007 period, that was under the previous Indian National Congress-led coalition government. And at that time, you know, it was... uh, from my reading, kind of envisioned as it had disaster uh, relief, disaster management beginnings, and it was viewed mostly as uh, a mechanism or a grouping that would provide sort of public goods to the region. It had less of a security focus at the time. And I think that, you know, the National Congress government at the time was comfortable with that um, and was kind of exploring other avenues, but China had uh, a veto on their policy. There was some pressure uh, on the Indian government at the time, particularly from the left-leaning parties, from the Communist Party of India and such, uh, which are more uh, supportive of China and a better China-India relationship to sort of put pause uh, to the Quad. But obviously, you know, it, a lot of the fizzling out of the first version of the Quad was because of the Australian uh, perspective um, on China uh, relations. Uh, I think over time, what has happened is um, we've also seen a period where India was a little bit reticent or uh, hesitant to to cooperate with the Quad or even call the Quad by the name Quad uh, because there is a huge capability gap between India and China. There's a military gap. They have a historical legacy of having gone to war in 1962. They have had uh, various uh, skirmishes on the border. Um, and so there was a period where India essentially tried to be accommodating uh, of the Chinese position, tried to have a uh, you know, dialogue, tried to have these sort of leader level summits. Um, and this was both you know, during Prime Minister Singh and, and, and uh, Prime Minister Modi. But what has happened over the past, I want to say, seven to eight years is, uh, and particularly after the, the current standoff that is going on, is that India has essentially realized that its policy of accommodation with China is not going to work particularly after the Galwan crash that happened in June of 2020, in which India lost 20 uh, soldiers in a very like horrific, violent manner, there has been a complete change in, in perceptions of China in the country. And this was happening slowly over time because there were uh, you know, uh, border standards in 2013, in 2014, in 2017, but 2020 was really sort of this you know, watershed moment that now there is going to be a complete change in the way that we approach China. And if there was any, any hesitation in kind of opposition quarters, that has gone as well. And now there is actually um, 
you know, I think even if there is a change in government in 2024, which I don't really expect, but if there is, I think there is actually a unified uh, perspective of China as being sort of India's uh, biggest uh, threat, biggest long-term threat. Um, and, you know, even kind of the Pakistan uh, threat is seen from, from that point of view, that China and Pakistan have uh, this collaborative relationship and might want to do things uh, on the border of India together. So I think, uh, you know, from a country that wasn't even using the word quad to Prime Minister Modi now calling quad a force for global good, I think that really shows you sort of India's evolution on the quad and uh, both parties' perspectives on it as well. Great, thank you. I I want to pick up on one theme you just said there, which is is quite striking. This this 2020 is a point of real clarity in India. Sort of the, you know, views of China will never be the same after after 2020 in India. Um, Alison, I think uh, if we look at U.S. policy, there's been a, in my view, a consistent attempt by um, certainly, you know, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, the Biden administration. The, the recognition that China is a, is now a strategic competitor. This is something that seems to be transcending um, partisan divides. And so I'm, I'm curious for your view of how internalized the sort of US defense establishment is, is with relation to the Quad. I mean, are we seeing the kinds of moves within the Department of Defense, within the Department of State, within uh, the combatant commands that are kind of institutionalizing um, the Quad and, and US relationships with the Quad partners as part of this broader US strategic competition with China? I think that the short answer to that is yes. Um, as Sheila was noting uh, just a minute ago, we've really seen, um, you know, an uptick in the developments uh, related to the Quad as we've had higher level meetings and now summits between the leaders. Um, and what that is doing uh, further down in the bureaucracy in the United States is it's building uh, those relationships and those muscles, those working level uh, interactions where staff uh, and uh, and officials from all four countries are building patterns of behavior and engagement with one another um, that uh, really lend uh, a positive momentum to to the interactions and to the initiatives that all four countries have um, started to put together and really do deliver now on some of the promise of um, delivering public goods to the region. Uh, so, you know, through the Quad, the United States is really able to leverage the strengths of the partner nations that are involved, including um, their relationships and the credibility that those nations have in their own subregion, and the capacity uh, on critical kind of quad issues um, like health and maritime security and infrastructure development um, to establish and implement initiatives that meet the region's needs. Um, so they did this with the program to uh, distribute vaccines uh, and um, the kind of effectiveness I think of that these four nations um, is being kind of further enhanced by the increasing emergence of quad plus activities. Um, so it's not just building those kind of relationships and muscles between the four countries, but now um, it's able to identify ways that other countries like Singapore or South Korea can contribute um, on specific issue sets or um, in, in different working groups. 
Um, and we see this now, uh, Singapore is joining the Quad on a newly announced initiative um, to stop illegal fishing uh, by using satellites to connect um, existing surveillance centers uh, across these uh, different regions. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that spans major hotbeds for illegal fishing that is primarily conducted by uh, Chinese vessels. Um, and so it's meeting a really significant need uh, identified by smaller states uh, that rely heavily on fishing, uh, but have little capacity to, uh, to conduct enforcement in their own EEZs. And so uh, you know, we're we're just seeing again the the ability for these countries, these four countries, and now expanding it into um, other countries in the region that want to contribute. Um, that it has a positive momentum of its own that I think is going to continue past any one administration. All right, so Haley, we've just heard strong assessments of, of continuity about the Quad from Sheila, from Akriti, and from Ali. Um, we're recording this just a day or so after Australia's election. It looks like you guys have a new Labour government under Prime Minister Albanese. Does this portend any changes in Canberra's thinking or objectives about the Quad? So the first thing to say is that Australia is very lucky to be a member of the Quad. And that might surprise a few people, considering we already have an Australia-Japan-United States trilateral arrangement. And some people say that India can be the odd country out um, in the Quad framework. But I'd actually suggest that Australia is, again, the lucky country to be in the Quad. And so for that reason, both political parties have always strongly supported the Quad framework. There is a bit of controversy about who really killed the Quad, because when the Quad broke up back in 2008, it's often the Australian Labor government, which is the government that looks likely to win in our uh, election, um, that the Labor government was responsible for getting rid of it last time. There's some controversy there um, about who pulled out at the Quad first, but the bottom line is that both political parties really strongly support this framework. The reason is because being among the US, Japan and India puts Australia up on a pedestal. So the Quad includes two of our most important security partners in the US and Japan and three of our top five trading partners. So we really don't want to get this grouping wrong. And it also puts Australia up on a level of countries that have some of the strongest militaries in the world, the strongest economies, and that are also very geopolitically quite strong. So Australia wants to be a member of this group, uh, and it really needs to have this group going forward. So if we do see a Labor government coming in, I fully expect it to throw its support behind the framework. Um, Labor has already said that it fully supports the Quad. I think the biggest challenge for Australia in looking at the Quad will be to narrow down this grouping's focus. Um, after the Quad Leaders Summit in September last year, the Quad had announced actually 12 areas to cooperate on um, and a, a number of working groups associated with that. Now, if you think of 12 things on your to-do list at home, that's a lot of things to do. And in fact, I think the biggest challenge for an Australian Labor government will be to get the other Quad members together to agree to actually narrow down their focus. Because while you could say that having 12 things shows that all four countries um, really have common interests and values and there's so much they want to cooperate on, 
In actual fact, what I think it says uh, silently is that they don't have priorities because they can't agree what their priorities are. So I would really strongly recommend that um, a new Australian Labor government have that as the main thing that it seeks to achieve out of the Quad partnership going forward. Great, thank you. Um, Sheila, how is um, Tokyo looking at the sort of current situation of, of the failure of deterrence, as Ali described it, uh, in Ukraine. I mean, the West was not able to, to, to deter Russia from acting. The speculation about deterrence against China over the Taiwan Strait, but we also have situations of deterrence against North Korea with its nuclear and, and missile uh, program, which is a big threat to Japan. Um, and some speculation, at least by some um, some parts of the Japanese national security establishment to revisit this question of, of extended deterrence on the Japanese archipelago. Give us uh, just a couple minutes of, of sort of how you see that debate unfolding right now. And, and you know, is Japan shifting its position a little bit on, on this question of deterrence? So, yes, <laughs> there's my first answer. Um, so there's various dimensions of this that's a little bit of history and a little bit of where are we now, especially with the Russian aggression against Ukraine. Um, the United States uh, and Japan have had what they call the extended deterrence dialogue now for almost a decade, I believe. Um, and that was really born from, and this is during the Obama years, from Japanese concerns about what exactly we were going to invest in in terms of our nuclear umbrella and what were our strategic capabilities, how were they being prepared uh, for use in the Asia-Pacific at that time, um, if necessary. And in our nuclear posture review, you'll remember during the Obama administration, of course, there was a, a long conversation about first strike and whether or not we should abandon the idea that we will initiate the use of nuclear weapons in a conflict. Um, our allies, and especially in, in, in the region, um, Japan, was one of them, really didn't want us to go to a no first use policy because they really felt that that would undercut our the credibility of our extended deterrent, our nuclear, nuclear umbrella, uh, and they didn't want us to take that option off the table. So there was a conversation that emerged during the Obama administration in which our folks in the Pentagon doing the nuclear posture review and the Japanese government really you know, came to terms with, OK, now we need to get more practical. Like, what do you maintain? How are you going to use it? How are you going to deploy it? And that surprisingly, for people who look at other alliances, that was really the first time we got into the nuts and bolts, uh, and obviously in classified settings, but of how our strategic forces were organized and how they might be deployed and how they might actually be used should there a conflict happen. So this is a new element to the to the U.S.-Japan alliance, and it's one that has largely focused on capabilities. Um, what you what we have to remember, of course, about the Indo-Pacific and our allies there is that both South Korea and, and Japan are non-nuclear powers and are committed non-nuclear powers. In South Korea, however, we have a conversation open in, in the political uh, debates of, in Seoul about maybe it's time for Seoul. If the United States won't put tactical weapons on, on South Korean territory, maybe Seoul should think about its own nuclear capability as a deterrent. You don't see that conversation in Japan. And, and most of our audience, the people listening, will understand, of course, that Japan's history as the only country that has been against which nuclear weapons have been used means that there's a very deep antipathy among the Japanese public towards the use of nuclear uh, weapons. So that would make a complicated conversation politically inside Japan about acquiring their own nuclear capability. But there is a conversation ongoing, and you're going to hear more of it later this year 
about getting uh, that what, what the Japanese are calling counter-strike capability, which is a non-nuclear conventional capability, that but that will allow Japan to have missiles or whatever platform they decide on that would be capable of uh, use against either North Korea or potentially China if necessary. In other words, to shore up the deterrent, to, to sort of not have Pyongyang or Beijing mis mistake Japan's non-nuclear status from an unwillingness to retaliate should they be attacked. And I think you're, you, you saw it in President Biden uh, in, was in Tokyo to, speaking with Prime Minister Kishida, Kishida referenced this uh, during the meeting. So this is something I think it's coming. The platform, you know, the counter-strike platform is unclear at this moment, but I think this is the, the way the Japanese want to shore up their piece of, of, of deterrence. But I think there's another element because you started this question with the Russian aggression against Ukraine. And I wrote a little bit about this for a piece that I uh, published with you guys not that long ago on what do we know already <laughs> about what the you know Russian invasion says about about the U.S., Japan and Taiwan. And I think this is a more complex piece. It's not your standard deterrent deterrence kind of conceptual language, but it is the reality of public perception. And we don't really explore the politics of you know, extended deterrence all that much in the U.S.-Japan relationship. And by that, I mean, what happens if if China says, if the United States comes into the war or comes into any uh, conflict involving taking over Taiwan, um, Japan is on the front lines and perhaps China could use nuclear weapons, you know, might threaten nuclear nuclear use against Japan or even against us. And so that use of nuclear coercion, and this is a little bit what we think of when we think of Putin's threat, that he will escalate if the United States comes in or NATO comes in. Um, this is absolutely what we could probably expect from China, should there be a Chinese desire to use force against Taiwan. And already there's some hints in the popular press about you know, CCP videos that, that have you know, uh, threats of nuclear force or use of nuclear weapons against the Japanese should they cooperate with the Americans. But the politics of this, are, it's different than the strategic doctrine that we've all grown up with in terms of deterrence. This is really at what point will the political threat of escalation, either vertical, i.e. they will go from conventional to nuclear use, or horizontal, they will say, aha, Japan, we will attack you if you decide to help the Americans in this conflict. Um, this is something we really haven't talked about too much in the alliance, and it, it opens an avenue, I think, for our political leaders to have a, a pretty honest conversation about how we would imagine these kinds of threats being, you know, used by China against either Japan or the United States. I'm going to go straight to Alison here, I think. I'd like to, Ali, to get your views on, on um, how you see sort of Washington grappling with this question of, of deterrence and reassurance of allies, and specifically in the cases of, of Japan and South Korea, those sort of core alliance relationships in Northeast Asia. Um, anything that you would uh, agree or disagree with, uh, with what she was put on the table there? I don't think I would, uh, no, nothing to disagree with what uh, Sheila has put on the table there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, what the United States is exploring uh, and has put forward a new concept, uh, integrated deterrence, that is focusing um, uh, much more specifically on uh, the contributions of and the cooperation with allies and partners and their capabilities. Um, so that's a big piece of, of what uh, what the Biden administration is seeking to do to expand beyond kind of the traditional uh, 
conception of deterrence in the Indo-Pacific centering on um, U.S. nuclear capabilities and the U.S. nuclear umbrella, uh, because I think, it, you know, and it the discussion we've had here about Ukraine today fits fits very well in this that 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 alone uh, was not sufficient to deter Russia, and uh, we see not only uh, Russia but also uh, in, to a great greater degree China using uh, a wide range of capabilities, um, some kind of non-traditional and gray zone capabilities that the United States is kind. Of still trying to figure out the best way to respond to. And both uh, uh, Japan, uh, Australia, and several other partners in the region are also uh, grappling with these, these gray zone behaviors and how to deter China's behavior in these areas without um, clear definitions about uh, what is encompassed within them um, and clear guidelines on, on rules of behavior. Um, with South Korea, it's a little bit different because when we talk about deterrence, um, we're mainly talking about North Korea, and um, it's a whole different ballgame when it when it comes to North Korea. Uh, we, of course, have the newly inaugurated president in South Korea, uh, and uh, we anticipate that the new administration in South Korea will be in line with the United States a little bit closer perhaps than the past uh, administration on North Korea policy in particular. But the flip side of that coin is we're also already seeing uh, some increases in North Korea's uh, aggressive behavior, testing of missiles. There have been rumors of uh, um, another nuclear test that hasn't yet materialized. Um, and so it's uh, a major issue that uh, the new moon the Yoon administration will be faced with right away. Um, and the United States and South Korea will have to uh, really take another close look at uh, what exactly are the policies that uh, we're implementing to deter North Korea that we haven't tried already um, and that have not yet worked. And uh, I'm not sure that there is yet a clear uh, window into what, what that uh, new approach might be, uh, but it's something that the that the relationship and the alliance will have to develop uh, in the in the months to come. So Haley, moving down from Northeast Asia to the Southern Hemisphere, um, is there a similar debate taking place within the Australian national security establishment about deterrence, you know, the apparent failure of deterrence to prevent Russia's actions in Ukraine, uh, extended deterrence guarantees that the U.S. is providing its allies in the Indo-Pacific region? And, you know, if you want to, I'm, I'm interested also in your views on how the AUKUS arrangement plays into this. Obviously, this was a big step and, and certainly drew some fevered speculation from some about, you know, you know, is this the beginnings signals of Australia looking at some kind of nuclear capability through the through the acquisition of nuclear powered submarines? So um, any anything you can share with us there in terms of the, the deterrence debate um, down in Australia? Mm. Well, first of all, I would say that um, there hasn't been a lot of debate in Australia about the Ukraine invasion of Ukraine being um, a failure of deterrence. I think many Australians, um, both normal um, everyday and politicians, just see that situation as something where Russia has done what it wanted to do, has done what Putin wanted to do, and that no deterrence could have actually prevented that from happening. In terms of Australia's own thinking around deterrence, well, we have the ANZUS alliance with the United States, and many people say that that brings Australia under the US nuclear deterrent umbrella. 
But in fact, it doesn't. Um, the ANZUS alliance that Australia has with the US is only a treaty to consult one another um, in the case that um, one or the other is attacked. And ANZUS has only ever been invoked on one occasion, and that was September 11. Um, in fact, at the time September 11 happened in 2001, by coincidence, Australia's Prime Minister was in the United States meeting with the President, and I think partly that factor catalyzed Australia to invoke ANZUS. But Australians don't generally um, think in deterrence terms. Again, we're a very lucky country in the sense that we're geographically isolated. Um, unlike Japan um, or India, we don't have threats at our very doorstep. Um, we are remote um, in the South Pacific. And so we're not too concerned about deterrence. That being said, obviously, you mentioned our um, major AUKUS deal with the US and the United Kingdom. And that very much is about deterrence. It's about deterring China and making sure that um, Australia has enough submarines in the region to be able to do a number of things. Um, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, um, being able to loiter in areas. Um, but um, AUKUS is also not just about submarines. It's also about developing um, cutting edge emerging technology like hypersonics and quantum and cyber and undersea warfare. So we're also able to do deterrence of a totally different kind, um, which would be deterring, for instance, um, in cyberspace or in other areas. So there's a broad sort of range about thinking about deterrence as it relates to AUKUS. Thank you. Um, Akriti, let's come back to you here. Um, obviously, nuclear weapons have been a part of India's deterrence strategy, both against Pakistan and against China. Um, but again, this, this broader question that's come up with the invasion of Ukraine, the failure of deterrence uh, in, in that situation, is, is there debate taking place within Delhi right now about um, th these questions of deterrence and then specifically the role of nuclear weapons in that deterrence um, posture that India might be trying to achieve? So I think it's a little bit uh, different for India, uh, at least in the context of China, because both India and China um, have a no first US policy with regard to their nuclear weapons. And um, I think um, in terms of sort of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the question uh, sort of directly linking that to um, to the Indian subcontinent, sort of India's perceptions of uh, a conflict situation in its neighborhood is more about will China take a leaf out of uh, Russia's playbook and try to do that on the border with India? Or will there be some sort of China-Pakistan uh, sort of collusive um, action such that, um, you know, there is uh, potentially a China-India border skirmish and Pakistan tries to um, also um, sort of have an, an uptick in uh, cross line of control uh, violence or activity at the same time and how does India sort of deal with that. So those are sort of questions that are coming. Uh, there has been some conversation and thought about and you know there has also been in in military circles particularly from uh, the recently retired Indian Army chief about um, you know what this means for uh, the, the, the fact that conventional wars can still happen, but also what is what, what does escalation then look like? Uh, and also the fact that, you know, this uh, Russia essentially changing status quo and trying to change uh, the borders of another country, what does that mean for uh, how China views the region? So I think less so on kind of the nuclear weapons side of things, but uh, mostly on kind of what are the learnings uh, for a conventional war and possibility of that in the region. 
Thank you. Well, time is is almost at an end here for us today. So um, I want to ask what um, maybe a little provocative. I want to put you all on the spot a little bit and ask you to, to gaze into the future and think about how the quad evolves. And drawing on a couple of things we've talked about here um, within this conversation, on the one hand, the, the quadrilateral, quadrilateral security dialogue is a security focused mechanism of four countries. And yet, as, as Alison mentioned, it's we've had various kind of quad plus type arrangements that we're already beginning to see take place. And then within the Indo-Pacific region, existing bilateral alliance structures that the US has with some allies and partners, the new AUKUS arrangement that's brought the, the British into the region in a, in a more significant way. Um, so there's a potential evolution of the quad as a security mechanism. And also alongside that, again, as Alison mentioned, there's now the, the US sort of pushing the Indo-Pacific economic framework, the, which was, was announced this week. And then we're against a backdrop of, of RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which um, China is now sort of the lead in, even though it wasn't really a Chinese driven initiative to begin with. Um, and India famously sort of de declined to get involved in, in that um, effort a, a year or so ago. And then uh, CPTPP, the successor to TPP, which was the, uh, again, a, a, I think New Zealand, Chile, Singapore originally was sort of driving that. But obviously the, the Japanese kept that going after the, the US pulled out. So th there's a security future for the Quad. There's this complex set of economic and trade frameworks going on within the region as well. Um, is the Quad, here's the question, is the Quad mature enough to evolve as a security mechanism with all of these complex Quad Plus type um, evolutions that we can imagine alongside a very complex um, international environment and a complex set of overlapping trade relationships? Um, or does the Quad kind of just collapse under the not the weight, but just the, the messiness of all of these different kind of networked relationships that are taking place. Um, quick 90 second answers. I'm sorry, I really am putting you on the spot. And let me start this time with um, with Alison and then Akriti and then Sheila and then Haley. All right, my quick take would be um, I think that the messiness is what makes the quad work. I think it is what actually um, will enable it to uh, thrive and, and be able to bring in countries that can't necessarily commit to um, joining a security agreement that puts them uh, you know, at odds with Beijing directly, uh, but at, in taking part in specific initiatives where they might be able to lend uh, a specific strength, uh, then they can still contribute to the rules-based order, uh, the values-led order that the United States and its partners in the region are seeking to really shore up. Um, and so I think that that uh, facet is what makes it, um, we have four core countries that will you know, keep it going and then we're able to uh, move countries in and out depending on the set of issues. That seems very appealing to a number of countries in the region. And as Sheila said at the very outset, these mini laterals that have developed um, many involving Japan, um, but now starting to draw in countries uh, in Europe as well. We see the UK and now France expressing some interest in kind of having more engagement in the region, um, that this could be an avenue for, for some of those engagements. Thank you. So 
I agree with Alison, and I think I'll, I'll uh, sort of repeat this idea that I've heard from other scholars like Atuva Jayashankar and Tanvi Madan, who say that, you know, quad partners don't have to do everything together necessarily. They can do things by themselves, you know, bilaterally or in a trilateral, as long as they are coordinating policy actions and working towards the same objective. And I think that's what you're seeing with some of these initiatives, especially on the quad plus side of things. You're pulling in country, countries that have comparative advantages on those issues and making sure that those countries that are strong in those areas, for example, you know, South Korea with semiconductors, you pull them in to provide the expertise that they can. And the quad is the one that's sort of leading this and providing that strategic rationale and leadership for it. So I think, you know, the quad needs to provide public goods for the region because that's what they immediately need, like, you know, connectivity, infrastructure, maritime security, but it will need to keep a focus on security as well to make sure that there is interoperability for a potential, you know, future contingency involving China. So I agree with Alison. I think the, the, the messiness and loosey-goosiness is actually helpful for the Quad, and the more that it can bring in partners for specific initiatives with specific agenda, it will be able to do more uh, with sort of its firepower of four. Thank you. Sheila? I like that conceptual term, loosey-goosiness. I, I like it. <laughs> so it, it is all about networking, and it, it it is in its conception the four countries that have the greatest capabilities to, to provide to the region, either in collaboration or, as Akriti said, separately. And I think we don't always, I agree, we don't always have to see all four aligned and standing next to each other doing the same thing. I think both, I think Allison made the point earlier about sub-regional leadership by some of them individually is very important. But here's the thing I think it's going to be really important for the Quad. And I think this is different than all the organizations you mentioned, Michael, uh, or the institutions you mentioned that also exist in the Indo-Pacific. The Quad came together with the express desire to produce results. So I think it's less about the architecture and more about what they can actually get done. And this is where I hope, I hope that there is consistent and persistent attention to producing results. So you've got this whole template now of working groups where you bring in relevantly interested and capable partners. It's great. It's all results oriented. And I think that's the that's if I, if you if we're going to have this conversation five years from now, I would say we're going to look back and say, what did they get done? And I think that they've already started to get things done on the COVID vaccination side. I think the supply chain resilience is going to be a big focal point and have lots of others in the region interested. Maritime security, I think it's quiet. It's not at the top of the list, but certainly getting things done in a way um, slowly, gradually. But I think there's a lot to get done in this world that we're living in and especially in the Indo-Pacific. So I would say it's a results oriented piece that we should keep our eye on. I think what the Quad is going to do is it will continue to strengthen because for all four countries, this Quad mechanism provides the best opportunity that they have, better than any other regional framework that we have at our disposal, to actually do things and make a difference in some niche areas, like what we're seeing with the Quad doing with COVID-19 vaccines. And now that uh, we could see a new Labor government in Australia, we could actually see it move the dial more on things like climate change, which countries in the region really care about. So as long as the Quad can show that it can deliver on what it promises, I think it will be a robust framework for the future. Well, thank you. Um, that's actually, a, I think, a, a great ending point for us and a, for all of our listeners, something that we can watch as, our, as the Quad leaders now uh, 
see the, the the institution evolve and see it tackle some real world problems, whether whether it does achieve those results that, uh, that Sheila just described. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. Let me briefly thank our, our guests today. Um, Akriti Vasudeva from the Stimson Center, Alison Solwinski here at the National Bureau of Asian Research, Sheila Smith at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Haley Channer from the Perth US Asia Center. Thank you all. We hope you've enjoyed us on this episode of Asia Insight, and we'll look forward to, uh, to you joining us for a future set of conversations. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.